we often see some of these guys get what would be seen as small jail terms or whatever. You know, they're caught doing something. Maybe they might be a big heroin dealer, like Jeffrey Mitchell was back in the day in the late 90s and the early 2000s. He was a major, major supplier. And he's caught with this armed robbery. And he goes to jail for what was, say, three or four years. And, you know, people would stand back and go, sure, that's nothing for him. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Notorious mobster Geoffrey Mitchell was found dead in a Dublin hostel after a suspected heroin overdose. The 49-year-old from Crumlin was once the most prolific heroin dealer in Dublin and in the late 1990s and 2000s he supplied both the Westies gang and the mob that would become known as the family. Today I'm talking to Niall Donald about the rise and fall of the one-time drugs kingpin and about his sorry end as a penniless and homeless addict. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Jeffrey Mitchell in the late 1990s and early 2000s was the number one target of what was then the Garda's drug unit. Um, it wasn't the Drug and Organised Crime Bureau, but he was essentially a major big supplier, firstly of the Westies and later of the man who went on to head up a gang we called the family. But Mitchell, aged 49, was found dead in recent weeks in a Dublin hostel uh, of a suspected overdose and living homeless. I mean, it is the chaotic end of what was once a glittering career in drugs. Yeah, I mean, it really follows the pattern that with a lot of these guys. I mean, Jeffrey Mitchell was probably the number one heroin supplier in Dublin at a certain point in the late 90s after maybe after the Gilligan gang kind of went out of existence. There was a rise of a number of young people and Jeffrey Mitchell was right at the top of that that tree. Absolutely um, one of the number one money making mach- drug machines in 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 mm. the city um as you said uh he was the westies obviously were at the time a gang based out in Blanchardstown in west dublin they were the, probably the number one gang making making waves notorious mm. for their violence um for their uh, how they collected debts off drug dealers but jeffrey mitchell was their supplier mm. Um, the Westies, you know, used to hang people from their ankles off the top of the flats. They often like beat people to a pulp because they might have owed 50 or 100 pounds then. Um, and like that's how they made their name. They were the most feared gang. They were young. They were Stephen Sugg and Shane Coates. Um, they came to a grisly end themselves yeah. underneath a the concrete casing in a in a warehouse in Spain but that was much after they had kind of made their name they started to make their name and they're sick when they were 16 and 17 kind of when yeah, was a little and, bit older but yeah like if you look back at the Westies if you consider we're talking about the Guinan cartel and hundreds of millions and buying planes from Egypt and I mean the Westies who who dominated the the, the news cycle at the time I mean these are really in to some extent small fry amounts of money going on i mean this this wasn't people making millions but they oversaw an absolute reign of terror um in collecting in mm. collecting debts and within a certain area they really 
ruled it with an iron fist. But Jeffrey Mitchell um, was was their supplier. Um, he seems to have had a contact um, to import um, heroin from the UK primarily at that stage. Through some Turkish gangs, no doubt. Through Turkish gangs, absolutely. And, it, it, you know, it wasn't containers full of the stuff. A lot of it was coming over on ferries and... Um, Certainly making huge amounts of money, but not on the industrial scale that, mm. that we would come to see. Um, if you look back, for example, in 2002, at that stage, an up-and-coming drug dealer uh, by the name of Brian Grandin, who'd now, who's now become arguably the prime target for, for Gardaí operating in Ireland, um, he, was, he pled guilty in 2002 to um, heroin with intent to supply. Uh, and during the court case, he... he Failed to plead guilty right up until just until the court case mm. began, and so the some evidence was heard of his operation, um, and it was described as he was being supplied by Jeffrey Mitchell's criminal organization. So at that stage, Jeffrey Mitchell was right up the top, um, originally from Crumlin, um, and he had cornered that little bit of the market really, uh, but he wouldn't stay at the top. No, and also he, while he was obviously making a serious amount of money then, he was still chaotic. He was never anything but chaotic because he was a heroin user himself. And, you know, anything he made, it's hard to imagine that anything he made out of that level of wholesaling went into his arm. But nonetheless, he certainly didn't seem to have a structured money laundering or way of collecting that, that no. money. I don't think he's ever been... No, I mean, he, he has been targeted by the Criminal Assets Bureau in the past. Has he? I can't actually quite remember well, now. We should look to that. I mean, he made enough money to make investments in, in, in property and, yeah. and, and things like that. So there was a huge amount of money coming in. But no, he didn't strike, he didn't strike one as a criminal mastermind. No, no. He, of course, like he, he famously um, landed at the Sunday World offices because he wasn't happy with the publicity he was being given um, in in. I think it was two thousand and one. Um, one of his friends had been had been uh, killed, basically. Yeah. A guy called Dave McCreevy, uh, who's involved in Jeffrey's drugs business. And in the fullness of time, I don't think this was ever fully clear who killed Dave McCreevy. It seems to have been linked, an IRA link to it actually as well. And you know who ordered it is not is not exactly clear. But Jeffrey Mitchell was being named as a suspect. And he didn't like that. Mm. Um, and you he came know, in for a meeting, did he? He came in for a meeting to set the record straight. And pre one of press ombudsman, pre press ombudsman. But you know, one of his quotes was, "I may rob banks and sell drugs, but I don't go around killing people." Oh. So we came in to say that, and you know, it may well have been true. Sweet. Um, yeah, he 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 had been linked to suspected of murders, but really, I think he was a, a chaotic drug drug dealer who sort of. You might say landed on his feet briefly, but certainly found a, a niche and and developed it. But his own um, personal chaos, I think, caught up with him. Um, now around that time, as he's landing into the Sunday World offices to admit robbing things and all the rest <laughs> of it, but not actually killing anyone, he's also seems to have been in a relationship at that point with a girl called she would later be Kira Mahoney, married to Brian Mahoney, and uh, a suspected member of the Kinahan organisation a guy with convictions and who the Criminal Assets Bureau have taken a proceeds of case against. But previous to her uh, marriage to, to Brian Mahoney, Kira was in this relationship of sorts with Jeffrey Mitchell. And 
around then she was jailed actually for her part in the robbery of the perfume shop in the square in Tala. That was in 2002 when more than 60,000 was robbed from the owner, a man called Daniel McKeagney. Now, Kira was, when she was brought before a court, uh, the court heard that she facilitated the robbery by telling Mitchell of her boss's movements and, you know, where the money would be on the morning of the smash and grab. So um, Mitchell at that point was under surveillance and that's how the whole thing was was blown. But she seems to have um, had a, you know, a, a relationship with him at that point that, that obviously broke up after the two of them went to prison in regards to that. But at that point, he's on the Garda radar for years and years after building up this lucrative business. At one point around this time when his home is raided, dozens of Armani designer jeans are found with the £500 price tag still on them. So he obviously liked his threads. Um, And despite kind of going in and out of prison and going in and out of addiction, uh, Mitchell would continue in the heroin world. Probably when he did go to jail, that was for that robbery. That was more or less the end of his career as a drugs kingpin. Now, no doubt he was continued to be involved in the drugs trade. But I think that that break in prison really things moved on when he was inside. Um, He was obviously had fallen out with the Westies. They had tried to kill him. So he'd actually they'd had in 2001. What did he fall out with them over? Well, he fell out with them over money. The the usual thing. But in 2001, two members of the Westies gang broke into his flat and tried to shoot him. Uh, basically, and he survived that. Mm. Um, and then it seems the Westies had completely turned on him and at one stage um, raided his flat and took, a, you know, a six-figure sum is what was yeah. what was said. But by the time he got to prison... Um, and speculatively, just to point out, like that sort of like robbery, that high-risk robbery of, you know, the perfume shop in the square for the 60,000 reward for that, that when you see kind of guys involved in the drug business taking a huge high risk for something as small as that essentially it's yeah. because they owe money yes and they're they're, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul yeah. literally um, but when he ended up in prison uh, yeah, he was in the Midlands and he was in 2004 he was you know what's described as viciously attacked he basically had uh, his throat cut um, was left fighting for his life and at this point um, Mitchell didn't have an organisation around him as such he had associates and and things like that, but he just couldn't stay at the top of his of of the drugs game. And by the time he got out, got out, he was a busted flush, I suppose you could mm. say. Uh, certainly had extreme uh, problems with drinking drugs that really dominated his life. Um, they, that time during that attack, it was with a cereal bowl. They smashed the cereal bowl over his head and then used it to slice open his neck. But they also tried to cut off his ears. Yeah. Which would be, a, you know, it's always a, an implication of being an informer, yeah. uh, rightly or wrongly. But of course, everybody gets called an informer. Yeah, when, when he, he was critical initially, and I think Kira later Mahani ran to his bedside, but they sort of went their separate ways after that. So when he came back out then in prison, I mean, I suppose it would have been the late the late two thousands. Um, he was a different beast. Um, and he's stayed relatively under the radar. Like he had amassed something like 70 convictions during his lifetime. So there was a lot of mm-hmm. uh, sort of chaotic crime. But in 2013, um, he ended up attacking a woman in Fibsborough. Um, it was a sort of a, a, 
certainly a terrifying attack uh, when he jumped on her as she walked home. She was a com- complete stranger. Um, there was there seemed to be no build-up. We didn't know her. There wasn't anything around it. Um, he, in court, he later claimed he had had 30 vo- vodkas that day. And, 30 vodkas? And sort of gave no particular explanation for what had happened or why it had happened. Well, I'd say 30 vodkas is a good explanation <laughs> for anything. <laughs> it was, but I mean, it, he seems to have come up and just jumped on her. And obviously right. it's an extremely terrifying incident for her. Um, and then he went back to prison again for an extended, I think it was three or four years for that. Um, and then when he came out again, I actually used to see him when I was driving home all the time, walking around with a big, big, beautiful looking dog. Right. And the dog was actually mentioned in his RIP notice how ah, much he loved this dog. dog. <laughs> yeah. So he used to be always around the Cabra Road there. And he actually used to see him uh, if it was in any, if the, if the sun even burst through the clouds to any extent, he'd have his top off. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He liked he he liked himself. He was a bit well. Of a I don't know. In a way. I don't know if he liked himself or, but he certainly uh, liked to get his top off, like a, a good yeah. Dublin a good Dublin tradition, I suppose. <laughs> so I mean, as he so this is see this is what happens as you know yourself, mm. Nicola. Like this guy's in his forties, and um, you know he's spent a good portion of his adult life in jail. Uh, doesn't have a penny to his name, and um, and you know he. Drifts in and out of the drugs business at a low end. Uh, you know, he was always said to be at that stage selling, you know, tiny amounts of, of heroin and, and tablets for hundreds of quid. To try and probably keep up his own habits. Yeah, and we had another guy recently in the Sunday world, and Jeremy Cooper, who had also been a really yeah. big shot back in the day, who was caught with a couple of hundred quid worth of, of Zimavane. Yeah. So this is this is how it ends up. Um and obviously then he uh, the next we really hear of him is obviously this weekend when he, he's he's found dead in a in homeless a in a home well in a hostel anyway, yeah, homeless yeah. hostel in swords. Um there seems to have been a, a quantity of drugs found with him. Um a mid range quantity of drugs. Fifty thousand. Well fifty thousand. Um That's a lot for a guy a, who's, you know, living day to day and maybe he was just holding it. And you see, this is the problem as well, because that is um quite a, you know, holding the drugs isn't top of the scale. If you're caught them, you're going to jail, aren't you? You are. Um but I often find that they will give these quantities of drugs to, to people to hold them and they're drug users and they cannot help themselves. No. But dipping in. No. And I mean, but of course that is, you get, you, you know, rather than you're not getting a, a, a check to your yeah. account, you get to take a bit of, bit of know, the product. Bit of yeah. the product. So that, that was it. He was 49 years old and, and buried this week. And um, so that's, that was the, the rise and fall. And he's not alone. Mm. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of people that, that if you look back at those, some of those guys from that that era that that you would have written about a lot. I mean, if you look at them, the vast majority of them are 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 dead already. And I'm still alive. I'm still been my era. <laughs> that was when it's you the came. Same era well, as you. No, no, that's when you came to prominence. <laughs> my prominence is is. <laughs> well, I'll is tell only you, just beginning. Mitchell, when he died, was just a little bit older than me. 
at 49. I'm just going to say that, right? Yeah. I'm not going to exactly say my age. <laughs> not that I care, actually, no. 48. But yeah, he's 49. So he's the same age as me. And like when I think back to the late 90s, the early 2000s, mm. and, you know, you're a certain age then that you just think you're infallible. Yeah. And obviously me and my journalism, him and his heroin dealing, yeah. um, you know, he definitely, heroin was also the kind of drug that, you know, you find within the drug dealing world, yeah. a lot of dealers look down their nose on heroin dealers, you know, cannabis dealers in particular or coke dealers. They'll go, oh, yeah, coke I mean, cannabis. but heroin is always seen as this big sort of scumbag. There's always this shame around heroin, even, you know, within that world. There is, because in a funny way, like there's there's a there's obviously huge profits to be made, but maybe it, there's never going to be the boom, glamorous. No. Cocaine being sold to middle class people. And sure, aren't we all taking it and they're yeah. doing it in there? And they're but doing it's not it recreational there. heroin, is no. it? It's the 24 no. seven. I mean, they would anybody who deals would tell you that if you want the mm. guaranteed sale, you go on the heroin because the phones never stop seven days a week. 24 hours a day with cocaine you're busy enough Monday to yeah. Thursday and then Thursday through to the weekend your phone doesn't stop and obviously obviously the consequences of the heroin uh, trade in, in working class communities was was, was obvious mm. and you know there was really really was looked down on within those communities and so people really were viewed as being far more immoral mm-hmm. selling heroin but yeah I mean that that is it, you know. It's funny as you talk about there. I don't remember those details, but the Armani jeans with the tags still on it. Yeah. But it's far from that where he ended up. Absolutely. And the other thing I was going to point out was I think this is a classic case of we often see some of these guys get what would be seen as small jail terms or whatever. You know, they're caught doing something. Maybe they might be a big heroin dealer, like. Jeffrey Mitchell was back in the day in the late 90s, in the early 2000s. He was a major, major supplier. And he's caught with this armed robbery and he goes to jail for what was, say, three or four years. And, you know, people would stand back and go, sure, that's nothing for him. You know, I mean, he'll be out in a minute. But actually, sometimes a jail term, even small, can disrupt somebody to such an extent that they will never get back to their original position within the whole greater scheme of things absolutely and I mean the guys who do come back and fit back in there tends to be a family organisation around them Mm. uh, who will sustain them when they're gone uh, or a particularly organised crime structure maybe but Mm. a lot of it is family based so somebody their brother their cousins are all key players as well and they just fit back in but guys like Jeffrey Mitchell they may try and keep their hand in, but they have no they have no organisation or structure. No, and they're them. taken out of the game for that little while. And obviously their supply and demand just goes. Their ability to keep that show on the road with the money, because the money has to keep coming in to pay for the bigger, you know, for the wholesale amounts that you're bringing in, that you're selling on, etc., etc. So often, yes, it can, you know, can take a guy like that off the scene. Sometimes when an even a cell structure is disrupted... Even some of those Kinahan cell structures we talk about uh, that were involved in some of those murder plots, etc. To dismantle them and to just throw them into prison for a couple of years can actually kill them off. 
Absolutely. And of course, the other option, people say, oh, well, sure, just you put him in and somebody else will replace him, which is true. Mm. But if you don't get these guys behind, the, the structures just go stronger and stronger. And you do get what happened with the Cunningham cartel, where they become a real threat to the function of the state. Mm. So they need to be disrupted. And everybody knows somebody new is coming in. That's that's a, a given. Yeah. And of course, it's not ideal. But you, And nobody thinks you're going to stop organised crime. But you do have to make sure the structures don't get too strong and too embedded. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell's the classic example of don't use your own product. Yes. Now, Donald, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.